welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Somaru. This week, I'm joined by Connor Landgraf, and he is CEO and co-founder of Echo, which is a cardiopulmonary digital health company. So Echo is elevating the way that clinicians detect and monitor cardiac and respiratory disease by bringing together sensors, patient provider software, and AI-powered analysis. And so, practically speaking, their AI-enabled stethoscopes, which use FDA-cleared advanced machine learning algorithms, they analyze heart sounds and they help detect heart disease. So they're trusted by tens of thousands of clinicians around the world right now, and they are screening and connecting millions of patients too. So I hope you enjoy this episode. So Connor, welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing today? Doing great. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here and excited for the conversation. Very welcome, sir. Whereabouts are you speaking to us from today, Connor? I'm joining you from the San Francisco Bay Area. So, um, the way we start these podcasts is I get you to tell your story, my friend. So for the benefit of our listeners, why don't you tell us all about it? Sure. So, um, my name is Connor Landgraf. I am the co-founder and CEO of Echo. We're a, um, med tech company building cardiac screening and monitoring devices and services. Um, we focus on using analysis of heart sounds and ECG data to help us better quantify cardiac and pulmonary function. And we're a um, commercial stage, but also deep in product development company. Um, So equal parts R&D and then equal parts commercialization. Um, My background though is is interesting. I actually got started with the company um, out of grad school. So I, uh, I, I actually got the chance to more or less spin a university project into a startup company um, a few years back. And um, I guess the rest is history, as they say. But um, going back even, I guess, before that, my journey with entrepreneurship definitely starts when I was uh, a younger kid. Um, okay, cool. My dad was, a, uh, I guess, an entrepreneur at heart, and he always had side projects or side businesses that he was running. Um, he was a uh, product designer by education, by training. And so I think what, you know, when, you have, when you're a product designer, you view every uh, annoyance or every frustration as an opportunity to innovate and build. <laughs> and uh, my was dad- the house full of half-built things or fully built things? Mm-hmm. Fully built things. I mean, my dad, my, I think my dad- uh, if he hadn't had a family, he would have, you know, risked it all and, and <laughs> built a, a true company. Um, but he really kind of gave me that, that fascination with starting from zero and building towards, you know, problem solving through, through entrepreneurship. That's and, awesome. Um, so he, he definitely sparked that interest in me. Um, and I got the chance to, in, in high school, I got the chance to um, te- focus on software development. And so I um, started a company doing web design, web development back in the early 2000s when, you know, it was really hard to have a website and (laughs) most businesses were trying to figure out like, what is the internet? And so I um, spent a couple of years in 
in my early teens building websites and starting the company doing that. And that spurred my like passion for software and, um, and software development. And then in school, I studied bioengineering and, um, oh, I see. echo more or less is the brainchild of software development and, um, medicine and, and biotech put together. That's awesome. It's, it's so interesting, I suppose, having that, that father that gives you that inspiration, that license, that freedom to then think about things in an entrepreneurial way. I suppose it was all, it sounds almost inevitable that you were going to go into entrepreneurship, inevitable that you're going to have that company. And it, it, obviously, you know, straight from grad school into it, clearly that, that manifested as, uh, as very true. Did you ever have any inkling to do anything else or was it just one thing led to another and here I am with a company and, and this, it was, you know, always going to be this way? I, I would, I definitely wouldn't say it was, um, it was, it was a given. I think what I knew was it was something that I was interested in. And I knew that at some point in my career, I wanted to have a chance to, to build something. Um, but coming out of school, I definitely didn't feel like I had the experience or skill set or knowledge to do that. Um, and really kind of just fell into it um, coming out of school. Um, we were, you know, so it was, it was actually a class project. And so as part of this class curriculum, we got the chance to do needs finding exercises um, with physicians to talk about right, well, awesome. areas where there were room for innovation. And um, one particular conversation was with primary care physicians, you know, family doctors about how they use the stethoscope in their clinical practice. And um, these physicians were wearing the stethoscope around their neck. You know, they were, you know, of course, every, every GP has a stethoscope. And we asked them, you know, how do you use this in your clinical practice? And these docs basically said they didn't feel confident using the stethoscope. It was, you know, they didn't really, they couldn't really discern whether that was a systolic murmur or a diastolic murmur. They didn't really feel confident to say like, is this, does this patient have a significant murmur that warrants a cardiology referral? Um, primarily because of lack of experience and lack of training. I mean, the stethoscope is not a simple instrument to use. And I think any physician that tells you they are uh, incredible with a stethoscope, you know, probably <laughs> maybe just, uh, it's funny. Uh, I can remember when I was, a, when I was a junior doctor, when I was a first year uh, doctor, and obviously you've done medical school and you've listened to a few bits and bobs, but I, I can just remember even as a, even as a first year, you'd, you'd listen yourself and then you check through the notes to see if any previous doctor had uh, had listened as well. And if you if if you got it the same as them, you'd be like, yes, I'm on the I'm on the right track. And if not, you'd you'd like oh, be like, oh, maybe I'll listen again and change my notes. <laughs> You're <laughs> like, like oh, I should I probably admit that. to yeah, that. Totally. But, yeah. I definitely heard the thing that they were. I heard that murmur. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, I definitely heard that the first time. Uh, yeah. No, it's, it's but it's true though, and I think you know, depending on the specialty, you're going to really well. It's funny, isn't it? Some people, like I suppose primary care, if you say GPs, they've got a stethoscope that they can use, but they're not using it on every single patient, perhaps not even every single day. And actually they might, you know, it's it's very conceivable. Someone could come in with a massive aortic regurg or even actually, a, you know, a slight aortic regurg, which was still causing yeah. them a problem, causing them to faint, like all those different things. You know, that, that can 
happen. And, and you're right, that confidence level perhaps isn't there for everyone. I can completely see and understand that. I mean, even as I say, even as a junior doctor and, and you know, when I got into SHO training or, or uh, my further training, basically, even then, you know, you'd you'd not be completely confident. There was never a safety net. There was never a backup. There was yeah. never something triaging it for you and then you confirming it where it often is in some places. So right. yeah, I can, uh, I can definitely see how that problem, how that problem came to the surface. And I love that needs finding exercise. That's a, just a great, a great thing that your school did with physicians. And obviously you had no other healthcare background, right? Yeah, no, I didn't. Yeah. So it was actually, the class was, um, you know, the, it wasn't actually titled this, but the class uh, was more or less med devices 101. It was, basically, okay, cool. it, it was basically like go through a simulated process of building a med device and start with needs finding and end with, you know, commercialization nice. and go through the steps of prototyping and business model analysis wow. and regulatory pathways, all in a simulated environment. So all with a, wow. a you know, not necessarily a full product, um, but it was those kind of needs finding conversations that really piqued this interest of saying, there are a lot of non-optimal solutions in healthcare and clinical practice. And many of these solutions just don't have the right people focused on helping solve them. And um, that was, <clears throat> I think that was the light bulb moment that said, all right, there's something here, this is interesting. And then was able to, you know, get some incredible resources um, from some early investors and some startup incubators to help us make that leap out of the classroom. Um, yeah. And then, um, you know, we're just able to kind of stitch together a series of milestones for company progress to be able to show that we could get this thing to market. Awesome. Um, and then uh, a few years later, and here we are. Now the rest <laughs> is history, as they say. Um, so talk me through going from idea to reality, because th there's, a, there's a lot of things that, that, that die in between those two places for, for many different reasons. Obviously, you doing this within that school environment, there's probably quite a rigid structure that you actually were allowed to, or a playbook at least, to play by, which, which got you there to reality. And as you say, you know, with a prototype version or whatever, but still... How did you how did you come up with the with this as a solution given that you knew that this was the need? Yeah. Um, I think I think early on we tried to cast as wide an aperture as possible. Yeah. And we tried to really um, pressure test all of our assumptions around what the product should look like. And so for the first I'd say in year, basically, we just did ideation, concept review, conversations with physicians to assess, you know, whether we were on the right track, and then we would discard what we did and restart. Um, and so you want to cast a, a wide net to make sure that you've encompassed the full scope of the problem and the solution set. Um, and then you want to test and iterate as quickly as possible. Um, and so for us, that was, um, you know, prototyping, manufacturing, 3D printing parts, building a oh, nice. concept, and then going out and asking questions like, was this the right solution? Did this help address the challenges? 
And then doing that, um, I think we probably did 10 or 12 different iterations of the product early on um, before we landed on the solution that we felt like was best suited to to the challenge. Um, It really sounds like lots of little feedback loops and lots of little changes and constantly course correcting with your customers, right? And I think this is such an important point. I think one of the... One of the problems that that course, that Med Devices 101, clearly solved for you was access to those people to actually iterate with, to actually get that feedback from. I think so many people, well, I say so many, you know, there are certainly examples of people building medical devices in a room and, you know, not having that kind of access to constantly iterate because at the end of the day, it's just going to come down to who's going to buy one, right? Or who's going to buy a hundred or a hundred thousand or right that's ultimately what it's going to come down to and and yeah it's it's brave to do those big pivots early it's brave to spend a year actually just figuring it out and all 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 that kind of thing but so 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 necessary yeah sounds like um access to those people was uh very important yeah absolutely and um and and then you know access to investors and capital to kind of support through that process and i think the you know, the rule of thumb that everyone always says is estimate how much you need to raise to get to your next milestone. Estimate, you know, how much, you know, early stage venture capital or angel investor money you need to support the, um, that milestone and then double it and, or in some mm-hmm. cases triple it because you know it's going to take you twice as long. It just always does. Um, yeah. And I think when you're looking ahead and especially with an early stage company, the road ahead is so murky and, and cloudy or foggy. And uh, it's really important to just have that additional cushion of support to help you help you get to that next checkpoint. Because um, mm. those are not getting to the checkpoint of progress is really devastating for most companies. I mean, that's the thing where um, that investor money dries up pretty quickly if you can't show those key milestones of success that lead you to commercialization or to regulatory approval yeah. in a few years. Yeah. So talk to me about the concept itself then, and I suppose the product itself that you actually built to solve this problem. Yeah. So we, um, you know, about the time that we were starting, there was a, you know, emergence of really good consumer voice technologies, things like Siri. I mean, the first time you used Siri, you're probably like, wow, this is incredible. It can contextualize my speech patterns and then create, you know, actions based off of it. It can open Google Maps. It can send a text message. Um, And the technology behind those voice analysis or voice recognition tools is really powerful. Um, A lot of it is built off of deep neural networks, you know, using that to process and identify the individual segments of a speech pattern. and so we were looking at this and saying, you know, consumer voice technology is getting incredible. Um, you know, Shazam can identify a song in a crowded Starbucks. Um, that's a very similar problem to identifying whether there is pathology in a heart sound or in a breath sound. Um, you know, it's really a matter of database curation. So build a large data set to train models from. Um, really good annotations and labeling on that data set. Um, and then, uh, you know, high quality validation in a real world setting to show that it performs in a clinically meaningful way um, and can help give confidence 
do those frontline clinicians. And so uh, that was kind of the, the AI piece of this was we said, let's try to put these things together. We, we want to build what we said was Shazam for heartbeats. Um, if you, if, I don't know if they have the app Shazam in the UK. Yeah, they do, of course. <laughs> yeah, I think it started in the UK. <laughs> Page so. one of my apps on my phone. <laughs> there you go. I've built into um, Siri now, as you say. Yeah, it's a good point. I know. Yeah, Siri, Siri has it. <laughs> um, but we, you know, that was the, that was the catch line was, was let's build that. But we also recognized like there wasn't any good hardware on the market to even capture heart zone. So we needed to build the AI algorithms for the interpretation. We also had to build the digital stethoscope products just because the ones that were available really couldn't work well with the mobile device. So, um, and there were also no data sets available. Like we recognized we needed, all right, we're going to need tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of pathologies and big problems, you know, healthy solve. heart sounds. Yeah. Um, we're going to really have to do a lot of heavy lifting here. And so we've invested a lot in building that hardware, making it very simple and user-friendly with mobile uh, apps and mobile software, um, getting that to market. So that could prime the pump with our data collection efforts um, and then start to build those early generations of AI algorithms. Um, I think when we started the company, we said like, we're going to build both of these things together and we're going to release them to market at the same time. And then quickly realized, um, it was actually very important for us to do this in a stepwise fashion, um, get the hardware to market, demonstrate commercial viability of just selling digital stethoscopes, and then be able to get the AI and software capabilities to market in a sequence, you know, in a sequential fashion after that. Um, and that's, that was a... Uh, it's kind of become a theme of our product development strategy has been break big problems up into smaller pieces that we can tackle in a more, you know, in a, in a stepwise fashion. It takes a little bit longer, but you get to de-risk so many of your assumptions because you get to answer the questions like, you know, is there a good commercial model behind this product or this capability? And is there the right customer demand for it? And you get to test those things out without investing a huge sum of money or time in um, a particular feature or capability um, and then having you know a negative outcome to that, whether it's a poor regulatory outcome or just limited commercial success. And so we've tried to like break these problems up into discrete features that we can release. Um, and then those can help steer the direction of the company um, as a result. Cool. So a couple of questions that I've got then. So What's the goal here? How do you see this uh, playing a role in healthcare in terms of who's going to use it? Where where is it going to be used? How are they going to use it? Like, it's interesting about hardware and software as well, and how you see that playing out, and whether or not you'll end up leaning into one more than the other. But yeah, I'm interested in like the vision here, right? Yeah, there's there's two, really two sequences or two parts to the vision, and um, we haven't talked as much about telehealth and remote monitoring, but that's become a really big part of our strategy and, and our long-term roadmap in the last several years. Um, but there's really two sides of the company we see. One is improving the quality of in-clinic cardiac screening. So giving um, nurses, frontline physicians accurate to access to really high quality cardiac and pulmonary screening tools. So ECG, um, stethoscope, and then analysis of that data. So assessing heart murmurs, um, assessing arrhythmias, doing early cardiovascular disease screening and disease detection in the clinic. 
And then the second part of the uh, of the focus is on remote monitoring and telehealth and facilitating um, vital sign transmission for patients who are in a home setting or enabling um, high quality remote monitoring for those patients um, and supporting also like clinic to clinic telehealth. So, um, you know, frontline to specialist telehealth capabilities. But the, you know, the focus there is really telehealth in its current manifestation, which is video conferencing for most purposes, doesn't work for those patients who have chronic diseases where we really want to be able to assess their vital signs. I mean, you can imagine a patient with congestive heart failure as you know, video call is probably not the best way to do a check-in on that patient. You really need to be able to assess, you know, do I hear congestion in the lungs? Um, because of course that would be a very significant indicator for a CHF patient. Um, you know, is there any new arrhythmia that's developing? Am I hearing any new murmurs? Am I hearing a stronger S3 that might indicate more decompensation? So I need to be able to contextualize vital sign data for these really high risk chronic cardiovascular or pulmonary disease patients. And that's where we see our platform enabling that is real-time transmission, real-time access to um, the additional inputs we need to enable more meaningful telehealth for uh, chronic disease patients. Yeah, so it's so it's quite all-encompassing then, I suppose, your vision and it and it being played out in in a few different areas. But I suppose, as you say, you know, enabling that ability for people to be monitored more effectively with higher quality of data so that clinicians that are centralized in a place can make decisions on people might be able to keep more people at home might be able to streamline who actually does come into clinic makes a you know care more efficient makes everything cheaper from that organization side which means that patient cares better all the rest of it so yeah it's it's definitely part of that as you say that new paradigm of remote monitoring which is adding in that layer of observations it becomes then, I suppose, who looks at it, how often is it looked at? Are you in this camp of thinking that, you know, 24-7 monitoring and hospital at home, basically people hooked up to a virtual ward in their homes is the, is the right answer? Are you more for kind of intermittent triaging? Do you see this being used across both? I think the technology has applications for both. I think, um, I think you know, hospital at home doing anything 24 seven is, is going to be quite labor intensive. Yeah. Um, I think just obscene amounts of data as well. Like, I don't know who's yeah. actually going to look through it. And I know that, you know, you can apply machine learning, get actionable insights, but really so much of it is just them getting up and walking around and it looks like they're in VF. Like, yeah. I mean, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, you can imagine the false positives and all of the, uh, heartache and stress that that's going to cause for a monitoring team who looks at it and says, oh, this patient's in VF. And yeah, exactly. As you said, it's I'm just a, a that, loose yeah. electrodes. Oh. Yeah. It's going to be, it's going to, you know, there'll be challenges with it. I, I do think that um, the intermittent monitoring is really powerful um, and it can replace a lot of those, um, you know, low acuity check-in office visits that are pretty cumbersome for the patient, but actually play a big role in ensuring that they stay compliant and they stay on their meds and they stay on their treatment program. Um, I think we're going to see, I, my prediction is that we're going to see a massive increase in the number of case managers. Um, so, you know, clinicians or, um, or, or nurses in particular who help us just do those 
relatively frequent check-ins on these patients and help us um, assess those high-risk patients who we really want to ensure don't come back to the clinic. And especially in the U.S., this is a big problem. When we have the frequent flyers, we have those high-risk patients who um, we really want to make sure we put extra resources towards to prevent them from um, being rehospitalized. And I think virtual care there enables a lot of efficiencies and a lot of additional touch points with those patients. But you got to have the right technology. You got to have the right vital signs to be able to meaningfully engage with them. Um, and I think that's where we see uh, ourselves playing the biggest role versus the you know, 24-7 ICU at home. Yeah, that's that's really fair. And I do agree with you. There's a, there's a point you made that I really like, which is that there would be more, I think you called them case managers, but essentially what you're describing is just a slight reorganization of how we staff healthcare to fit around what we actually have for technology. I do think that that is probably starting to happen now. I think it probably will accelerate in the near to medium term future, just because of the, I think the amount of good technology that is going to be out there. And there are going to be questions asked of, well, why don't we just get more of this person? Because the more that we can get technology doing a job, the less we need the consultant, the attending with, you know, X years of decades of experience to be doing that paperwork, making those decisions. Like there's, they can set parameters for which they would make decisions on and then technology can help us do it. And I think, and I also agree with you about the intermittent being probably a lot more popular in the long run than the 24 seven hospital at home. I, I just... Uh, yeah, I, I just kind of, I, I can't remember to my, my anesthetic days, you know, but I wonder what, I often wonder, it's like, what percentage of alarms going off did I actually respond to? Or did I actually, was I actually concerned about? Because so often you silence it, it's alarm, silence, alarm, silence. Like it's not, there's, there's certain situations where you're hyper acute to it and you like, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm alert for it now. But most of the time, like, I don't I honestly couldn't tell you. It's, it must be really, really low. Or yeah. the percentage of alarms actually went off. So I, I, and I, I'm just unconvinced at the moment anyway. Someone, a listener might get in touch with me angrily now telling me that things are different. But I, I, I think we're a way off being able to trust the quality of data across all the observations that are meaningful without any human eyes on patients. I just don't think we're there yet. I think far more realistic and far more likely is this intermittent keeping the relatively healthy, relatively healthy. I think that is where a lot of ground can be made up because if we can as well, then we reserve that hospital time and that hospital space for those that do actually need it. The ones that are picked up with, you know, yeah. a massive diastolic murmur that need to go in and, and, and that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think you guys are definitely, definitely on the right path with, with, with that stuff. What's the, um, what's the product uh, roadmap looking like are you you guys looking at anything else i imagine it's uh inspired by your dad there's probably lots of bits you're tinkering with and thinking about <laughs> yeah i think um we definitely see it as a, as a platform technology and i think um you know we're we're continuing to be um blown away by the potential in 
acoustic analysis of heart sounds and lung sounds. So, you know, we've been primarily cardiac focused, but there's so much potential in, in breath sounds. Um, <clears throat> you know, the fluid dynamics problem of airflow through the lungs um, actually produces very interesting signatures and patterns in the sound of the breaths. Um, so as the patient breathes in and out, the changes in the diameter of the airways, the amounts of congestion in the lungs, all of those things, I mean, we, you know, we call them crackles, we call them rails, we call them ronchi. Um, uh, those are all, you know, very signature acoustic fingerprints that we can use to help identify lung function. Um, so we're excited to invest heavily in that part of the roadmap. Um, and then we had some, we had a pr particularly interesting collaboration with the Mayo Clinic um, to develop uh, and commercialize a algorithm to assess the the likelihood of low left uh, ventricle ejection fraction using just ECG. Um, and so the wow. hypothesis was, you know, left ventricle ejection fraction or low EF um, typically manifests as something you'd see on an echocardiogram or an imaging study. Um, and yet there are signature ECG changes that have been detected in those patients. And so the hypothesis was, can we train a deep neural network algorithm that could just classify these patients as normal EF or low EF or impaired EF? Um, and using you know, a very large data set uh, that the Mayo Clinic team had developed and collected over the years, we're able to demonstrate that with a high level of accuracy, we could predict which patients likely had low ejection fraction. Um, you know, to the accuracy of, uh, you know, 0.85 AUC or area under the curve, wow. um, which was, you know, for a screening test, really quite good, um, especially compared to other metrics like, you know, NT pro BNP or other blood tests that you might do to assess, uh, you know, cardiac performance. Um, and so we've, we've gotten FDA breakthrough designation for that, and we're working to get that to market we think that would be a very um, exciting technology to bring to patients. So you could take your patients who are at high risk, maybe high risk of developing early stage heart failure and be able to do an in-office screening test to determine whether they should be referred on for additional imaging studies and serve as that you know, rule in test to identify the patients that, hey, we should probably take a look at this. There might be some early stages of um, impaired uh, you know, last particular performance, and this probably warrants observation or monitoring so that we can intervene at the earliest possible point. Um, I think uh, the current statistic is that heart failure patients, the average time to diagnosis is about 900 days based upon Whoa. disease onset, um, at least in the US. Um, so it's, it takes a very long time for patients to get diagnosed with heart failure primarily because the symptoms in the early stages are so nonspecific. I mean, it's shortness yeah. of breath and, you know, what patient over the age of 65 doesn't have some shortness of breath with activity. And I think for most, for most clinicians, I think those are such nonspecific symptoms that, that could be so many different things that they aren't really chased down in the way that they should be for some of those patients. And there's a missed opportunity to help us manage that disease earlier. Um, and be able to potentially increase the amount of time that it takes for that disease to become severe. 
So when you think, when we talk about Echo as a whole and, and the products that you actually have at market now, I mean, you mentioned obviously this partnership with the Mayo Clinic, which is awesome and um, getting FDA approval and, and that kind of thing. Whereabouts are you with it um, generally in terms of, I, I imagine, FDA approved for, for the actual product? And I'm just interested sort of where it's where it's used. Yeah, so we've, we've uh, gotten FDA clearance for the hardware, a few different versions of the hardware device itself. So a combined ECG and digital stethoscope product, and then just a standalone acoustic, you know, traditional digital stethoscope. Um, and then we have a couple of clearances on the AI capabilities and the software connected with that. Um, That's so, awesome. you know, the product is, product is in market. It's used by, you know, uh, a wide group of clinicians representing, you know, several thousand hospitals and health systems. Wow. Our biggest markets are the U.S. and Europe. Um, so we've got, you know, a, 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 a really significant number of physicians who are using this in their clinical practice. And then earlier this year, we um, announced a collaboration with 3M Littman. Um, there's the Littman oh, stethoscopes. Cool. They're the, oh, they're yeah. the kind of, you know, the ones that everyone has. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so we announced a collaboration with them to build a co-branded product um, wow. called the Littman Core, which combines our digital offering um with the with the Litman cardiology for which is the you know the gold standard in traditional stethoscopes i think that's the one i've still got upstairs which i saw the other day <laughs> i've just moved house so i uh, i actually saw that stethoscope and it was just this wave of memories that just came back some good some bad um many in between but anyway i won't bore you with those um two, two specific things i want to i want to ask you about um the first one is obviously as an education tool, quite quite good, quite useful. Um, digital stethoscopes anyway were knocking around when I was at medical school, early junior doctor days. <clears throat> but obviously with with the software component and everything that I imagine you guys do on top, I do people buy it purely for educational reasons? Absolutely. We see many med students um, and med schools purchase them as part of their curriculum for auscultation, you know, teaching heart sounds and breath sounds. And one of the unique things about um, our software is that we can show you what we call the phonocardiogram. So the audio waveform of the heart sounds. Nice. And so you imagine, you know, there's the S1 and S2, the lub and dub, of course. And so you'll see those as two signature um beats on the audio waveform and then it's actually much easier to visualize murmurs um, so you can imagine that you know a systolic murmur will have sound waveforms in between the s1 and s2 heartbeats the diastolic murmur will have a sound waveform you know in between the s2 and s1 in the diastolic phase um, and so there's actually a very what we found a very um, powerful visualization technique to this, which helps reinforce what you're listening to. Because um, I think for many people, especially with high heart rates, I mean, it's very hard to assess and identify where that murmur is. Is that a murmur? Is that just, you know, extraneous breath noise? Um, and so attaching a picture to a sound um, plays a big role in helping people cement their knowledge. And interestingly, I mean, if you, in the med school textbooks, murmurs are taught by showing you the pictogram of what the sound looks like. Um, you know, if you type heart murmurs into Google and look at images, you'll see the textbooks definition of what 
what aortic stenosis sounds like or what mitral regurgitation sounds like. Um, and so we've learned these things pictorially some ways, and then we've reinforced that with tapes or audio or, <laughs> you know, whatever repetition method um, yeah. you've chosen. But we, it was actually very hard to capture the waveforms in clinical practice. And so now with the software, it's very simple to be able to see and hear simultaneously. Oh, that's awesome. That would have helped me so much at med school. I was uh, I was into I was into my music, so I used to do a bit of DJing and and stuff. But I was, I could tell you I could look at a waveform and tell you the difference between a deep house track, a trance track, a drum and bass dubstep. Really? I could tell you, I could literally just look you know look at the waveform and tell you that. So surely I could look at a waveform and tell you what a systolic or a diastolic murmur was. I mean, you got it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's it, right? The other question that I had for you is: we've had a couple of companies on this podcast that are leaning into the point of care ultrasound paradigm. So obviously this notion that ultrasound machines are getting smaller and smaller and smaller, they're now connecting to iPhones. There's talk of, oh, you won't need a stethoscope anymore because you're just going to be able to hang an ultrasound around your neck. And there's the butterfly IQ device. There's um, uh, Sandeep, who was on the other day, his company. Like there's, there's a couple of these, right, that are knocking around. And I suppose the more I, I see it, I, I see use cases for point of care ultrasounds and i see it finding its place soon pre-hospital medicine you know that super emergency stuff helicopter medicine where you can't listen to anything fine okay um and i can see it somewhat in primary care and i but again i can't plot the route to it replacing the stethoscope i'd be interested in your views yeah, you're not the first person who's asked that question. And many people are do herald the death of the stethoscope, and we are obviously not. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, you're unlikely to say that on it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, I think the stethoscope has lasted for 200 plus years. It <laughs> yeah. is um, incredibly simple and quick. Um, and I think that's one of the great things about auscultation is it can be done so quickly to be able to tell you. Um, with a high level of information about cardiac and pulmonary function. I mean, you're, you know, you, you have a patient, non-specific symptoms, you're doing a workup on them. And the most important thing you can do quickly is assess, are the airways clear? Are we hearing, you know, uh, breath sounds in both lobes of the lungs, for example? Um, you know, how's the heart rate and rhythm? Are we hearing any concerns around um, an irregular rhythm in the heartbeat? Are we hearing any concerns around um, you know, weak heart sounds or heart murmur. Um, and you can assess all of those things in just seconds with the stethoscope, which is so incredible is that you're able to do this like more multi-organ system review within 15 or 20 seconds. Um, and that's the, that's the beauty and simplicity of the stethoscope that I think has withstood the test of time. Um, I think, I think, you know, in, in the ideal future world, um, I imagine that st the stethoscope and POCUS are the incredible one-two punch that enables really yeah. high, highly specific, highly accurate triage and assessment for a patient. A patient comes in and says, you know, I have um, shortness of breath when I, or exercise intolerance. And the stethoscope is able to assess, hey, is this patient in AFib? Are we concerned about any rhythm concerns? Does this patient have a heart murmur? Um, uh, you know, how are the lung sounds? Are they clear or is there congestion? Um, the stethoscope could even flag in, on, in our situation. You know, we want to be able to identify, is there a murmur that 
it's associated with valvular heart disease. And if that comes back positive, we can do all this within 20 seconds. And the immediate next step is we're concerned that there might be some valve disease here. Let's mm. see if this is moderate or severe. This is something that we're really concerned about. Let's do the POCUS exam and whip let's look the at the leaflets. Yeah. yeah, whip out the ultrasound. Let's do a 10 or 15 minute POCUS exam. It'll take some time. We got to get the gel. We got to prep you. We got to show you right in the right position. We'll have to image a few different orientations. Um, so it's not going to be something that we do in 20 seconds, but it'll take a little bit of time. Um, and then we can order the next specialist referral or a full diagnostic echocardiogram or a stress test to really assess what the, um, the concerns are. But I, th I think the power is in that one-two punch. Um, and I think in terms of just workflow and simplicity, uh, the stethoscope has that uh, that advantage and that you can use it on every single patient. And I think focus, um, focus isn't going to, isn't going to change that. Yeah, I do agree. I, I, if I had to go one way or the other, I, I do agree. I, I just, whether or not I'm romantic to the stethoscope, I don't know. <laughs> I, 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 who knows whether it's that or I just, I just don't see, I just, I just don't see it ever being replaced. As you say, it's, what 200 300 years I yeah it's been around for for so long but anyway um yeah. final final question for me will be I'm interested obviously you've you've got you've done incredibly well great scale by the sounds of things you know partnering with with Littman to get new stethoscopes out uh Mayo Clinic other other places what size is your team um and yeah, who, who are the, who are the rock stars in your team that are making this happen? I think everyone on the team is a rock star. So we've got a, <laughs> a great group of folks, um, who, you know, span, uh, engineering and clinical regulatory software product sales and marketing. So it's a, it is a very diverse group of folks. Um, so we're headquartered in the San Francisco Bay area, but now because of the pandemic, we're obviously looking elsewhere and becoming a much more remote friendly company. Um, but we've got, you know, I, I, really I, just a world-class team of people who um, are able to stitch it all together. I, I would say, I think, you know, uh, startups are hard. Healthcare startups are extra hard just because you're dealing with a very complex regulated industry um, and they require a lot of additional expertise and knowledge to be able to bring products to market successfully. I think med devices are also really hard because you're dealing with FDA and you're dealing with a, um, a very high uh, evidence burden as you should. Um, and so we've combined all those things together and we're building hardware, software and deep learning algorithms in healthcare, uh, which, which requires a lot of um, expertise to do. Um, but, you know, we, we've, we've been able to um, collect some or bring together some incredible talent to help us achieve that. And, and I think um, uh, I'm really proud of our team. I think what we have found is that being a mission-driven company makes it so much easier to attract good talent. Um, when you have an organization that is fully devoted to a purpose that, um, you know, permeates through the organization, you know, I think everyone has a personal connection to cardiovascular disease or pulmonary disease and a desire to help improve how we care for those patients. Um, and so it's a very um, visceral, tangible mission. And um, 
you know, it's, they're very hard problems. There are no easy answers, no simple solutions. Um, but to be able to throw yourself every day you know, against the against this problem um, and be able to devote 100% of your energy to you know, improving in some small way the management of these patients and the care for these patients um, makes it all worth it. Um, and so I, I think that's our, that's our secret weapon. We're able to attract incredible people, not because of anything that we do, but just because the problem that we're trying to solve is one that, uh, that everyone cares about. Um, and it makes it easier to, to pull all-nighters or uh, work through really challenging deadlines when at a deeply personal level um, you resonate with that problem. A hundred percent. I think so many people are driven by impact. And I think even if, even if somewhat they are driven financially, I think most people will be able to find something if they dig deep enough that they are driven by making impact. And I think we're fortunate in health tech to, uh, to have that in, in, in most of our purposes, in most of our companies, uh, particularly the likes of yours that are, that are literally you know, on the, on the hands and the chests of, of patients directly and feeding back to clinicians to, to help them. I think it's awesome what you're doing, Connor. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Uh, final, final, final question would be this, this podcast goes out all around the world. I think we've got about half the listeners are in the UK, a quarter in the US and the rest spread absolutely everywhere. Um, do you have any asks of our audience? Are you hiring anytime soon? Are you raising anytime soon? Anything like that going on? We've got a number of jobs open. Um, so if you go to echohealth.com slash careers, um, we've got a number of, of open positions there. So if you see something that looks like it might fit your profile, we'd love to hear from you. Um, we are not geographically limited as much anymore. And so uh, we want to find talent around the country around the world really. Um, and, and if any clinicians out there want to collaborate on research initiatives or particular problems, we always wanna hear from clinicians who are dreaming up you know, incredible ways to use um, auscultation and, uh, and the stethoscope in their clinical practice. So um, any clinical researchers or, or students or faculty who want to work on projects or collaborate on research, let us know. We'd, we're always um, intrigued and interested. Awesome. And what's that new stethoscope called that's being released? Uh, we've got the, the core, which is the traditional stethoscope. It actually adds on to the traditional acoustic stethoscope. And we've got Duo, which is the stethoscope and single ED ECG combined. Awesome. Connor, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. James, thanks so much for the time. This is a lot of fun. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. Remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review and you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.